0: And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it's Monday as we get ready to wrap up the month. And of course, remember, this is a little bit longer February than usual. It's a leap year, so we're going to go all the way through the week. Um, But yeah, so this week we've got more earnings, but we are getting now down to wrapping up earnings season with NVIDIA now behind us. Pretty much all of the major companies that are going to report and potentially move the market one direction or the other uh, have reported. So we've got a really good indication of what earnings look like for the quarter. Uh, and now we'll start focusing on some of the inflation and some of the economic data this week. Of course, we have uh, some more inflation data coming out. The Fed's favorite measure um, as well will be out this week. Um, also, uh, we've got some, some more kind of economic data coming out over the next you know, couple of weeks in particular. Chicago purchasing manufacturing, uh, Chicago Fed Manufacturing Index, uh, and also the National Activity Index which is a big the, – the Chicago Financial National Activity Index is a very broad measure of economic activity and, and one that really does not get paid a lot of attention to, um, has 85 subcomponents to it, really takes a, a, a broad look at the overall economy. That has not really been supporting – some of the recent upgrades to economic activity. And, and in fact, if you take a look at what's happening with a lot of the kind of the mainstream economists, they're now have all backed off of the recession. And, and this was uh, over the weekend in our newsletter. Uh, we actually talked about the Conference Board, uh, which is the uh, organization that produces the leading economic index. They've now given up on their recession call. So the vast majority of all the mainstream mainstream economists have given up on this recession call. and if, In fact, not only have they given up on the recession call, they're now increasing their growth rates for this year, saying, hey, well, you know what? We're not even gonna have a slowdown. I mean, we were at least, you know, we had expected a recession. Then they said, okay, well, soft landing, economic slowdown. Now they're even backing off the soft landing scenario and expecting around 2% economic growth this year. So again, a complete reversal as markets continue to kind of ratchet all time highs. Um, the optimism is building rather sharply across not just Wall Street in terms of the stock market, but in the economy in general. But there's a couple of issues with that, of course. And and again, you know, with the conference board now saying, hey, you know, why are we backing off of our, you know, our recession call? Most of the recession indicators are still suggesting very slow economic growth, but the stock market's doing well and yields are doing well. So we're not going to have a recession. Maybe that's the case. Maybe that's the case this year. And that was kind of the point that we went through in the newsletter this weekend. So if you go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and click on the link for the newsletter, um, it talks about the the LEI index and why there's still a risk of much slower economic growth in the future. You know, it was interesting. As I was driving into work this morning, I was listening to the radio, and they were talking about, you know, the kind of the, the latest sentiment polls in terms of the politicians as we head into the election. And, of course... Overall approval ratings for the economy continue to remain very weak. Disapproval rates at 59% right now for the current administration. And that's very different from this attitude. I mean, if you just looked at the stock market and looked at economic forecasts, they look pretty good. But yet the average American not doing so well. And that's why there's this problem, right? The, the cost of food is going up. Cost of eggs going back up again. So we're seeing these uh, continued inflationary pressures. Now inflation itself is not rising, right? But it's the fact that higher prices have become sticky in the economy that's now weighing on the consumer. So again, a very different look between what's happening in the stock market and then what's happening in the real economy. So this is going to be one of the big challenges as we go forward this year. And again, if you take a look at the internal components of the leading economic index, they certainly don't suggest robust economic growth this year. The Chicago Fed National Activity Index Also, not suggesting super robust growth this year. But again, look, things can change. But, you know, as is always the case, when most of the economists are suggesting one thing, something else tends to happen. And that may just be the case this year as well. We'll see what happens here. Uh, You know, the, the conclusion from the newsletter this weekend is that a recession may be off the table for this year. But it doesn't mean it's off the table for next year. And again, just because we have so much liquidity in the markets, we have all the stimulus money, um, you know, the, the Fed Inflation Reduction Act, of course, you've got the SHIPS Act, all this kind of flood of money still in the economy, but that is slowly reversing, and which means that we still have that risk of an economic slowdown, potentially even a contraction, but it's just gonna take longer to get there. So that was kind of the gist of the newsletter this weekend. If you go by the website, Realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, you can get the newsletter. Read all through that, of course, all of our market stats, um, stock screens, all that's in there as well to help you manage your portfolio better. Okay, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Let's talk about last week, of course. Market sold off on Wednesday, uh, of course, heading into, um, you know, kind of earnings season, <laughs> earnings, the earnings report for NVIDIA. Earning, uh, earnings from NVIDIA really just, you know, did extremely well. They, they posted great earnings. But the interesting thing was the entire market jolted higher on Thursday, up 2%, setting all-time high. Friday, it, we managed to, to rise just a little bit further. On Friday, closing at an all-time high. So, again, you know, here we are at 5070 on the uh, S&P 500 record highs. Um, and the interesting question to ask yourself is how does a company like NVIDIA guarantee growth in a company like visa right and so this you know the whole market jolted higher because of nvidia's earnings but this is just that whole exuberance that we've now pegged into the market call option volume on stocks is is reaching very very high levels we are, are reaching levels of, of kind of ex- investor sentiment and exuberance that are extremely high levels positioning by portfolio managers are very very long equities and again This isn't a bad thing, and it certainly suggests that that's where we are currently in this kind of momentum-driven cycle. And again, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the markets for right now. And again, no reason to be, as we've said before, no reason to be overly bearish. This 20-day moving average continues to be the running trend line for the markets right now. And until we violate that 20-day moving average, there's not much... To be concerned with now again you know the markets remain very overbought on multiple levels so again upside is going to be a bit more of a challenge doesn't mean we can't just kind of keep grinding higher and that's what we've been doing here running really kind of fairly defined channel uh from top to bottom so now we're back to the top of that channel probably get a little bit of a sell-off come back down here towards the 20-day moving average the key thing to be looking for here from a risk management standpoint if we take out this 20-day moving average that then sets up for potentially a bigger contraction in the markets and again this market action that we have right now is extremely similar to what we saw last year um, when we were talking about the issue of the um, you know uh, the uh, silicon valley bank bailout back in march of last year the markets began a fairly strong rally that did ex- kind of exactly the same thing last year. Had a, had just a, a kind of a, a grinding uh, run higher here. And then, of course, as we got into July, which is where markets had gotten extremely overbought, extremely extended. Everybody's very bullish. Back here was also the AI chase as well. If you remember, this is, this is back when really the AI story really came to fruition. Everybody's like, oh, AI is going to change the world. We had ChatGPT and everybody was all excited. And then the markets went through about a 10% correction over the next several months before we got into the current advance, which, again, is very similar to the advance that we saw running up into July of last year. The, The steepness of this advance is a bit sharper than what we saw last year and but at the same time the markets remain very overbought for an extended period of time and again kind of the same structures we're seeing today is very similar to what we saw last year so again the point still is that at some point we are going to get a contraction of some sort five to ten percent correction sometime over the next few months very very likely so again we continue to suggest a bit of risk management here in your portfolio but that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Okay, when we come back, we're going to pick up, talk a little bit about kind of an emerging favorite trade right now, small caps. And we'll talk about the risk that exists in small cap stocks when we come back from the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So on Friday, I started writing a a two-part article on small cap stocks. And, and the reason is there's a lot of uh, commentary running around right now about the relatively cheap valuations of small caps relative to large caps. And... You know That's fine. It's, it's, it's an okay narrative. It's also the same narrative that we get about emerging markets uh, and international markets valuations relative to uh, the U.S. And that's the key risk when you talk, talk about investing in a certain area or taking on certain risk is when people start talking about things that are relative to something else. And, again, relative valuations – Are fine and there's nothing wrong with with saying this right but you have to take into account a lot of other factors when you start saying you know are things relative to something else in other words are all things equal so as an example if I have you know two Ferraris identical in nature one is priced cheaper than the other because the guy was murdered in the trunk, I don't know, whatever, for whatever reason, one is priced cheaper than the other one, then there is a relative value because outside of the price, everything else is equal. But when you start talking about things like relative valuations in stocks or in markets and in, in, in broad markets in particular, this is where things become you know a bit more convoluted because things aren't necessarily... Equal. And that's a big part of this. And so, you know, let's start with kind of the very basic, you know, kind of thesis on kind of market investing. And again, one of the, there's a couple of arguments behind the small cap. One is relative valuations. And one is that small caps tend to do better at the beginning of an economic recovery. And which is true. If we take a look at, you know, kind of market cycles and economics, Markets tend to lead the economy through cycles and investment styles tend to change through those cycles. And so, for instance, in the peak of an economic cycle where you have a lot of of momentum, strong economic growth, that's where your mega cap tech stocks are performing the best. Coming into... And economic expansion, that's where small caps and mid caps tend to perform better because the economy is just getting going and everybody's coming back to, you know, uh, everybody's going back to spending and things are improving. And so small companies, for instance, they can grow earnings very quickly because, you know, if I take a look at a company that makes $10 million a year and they increase their revenue from $10 million a year to uh, $15 million a year, that's a 50% increase in revenue. So very, very big increases are available to small and mid-cap companies because of their relative size. and so they can grow very quickly in an emerging economy. However, large caps that are making a few billion you know if you're making 100 billion a year, it's tough to go from 100 billion to 200 billion in a year right So the, the grow, it's, a, it's the law of large numbers percentages are, are becoming a bit more challenging. So it's not surprising that coming into an economic recovery, these stocks tend to perform better. The problem has been is this has not been the case now for quite some time. We've been through an economic recovery coming out of the financial crisis in 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And then we've been accelerating ever since then. Of course, we have the economic shutdown, etc. Right. And small caps, mid caps. The Russell 2000 across the board have vastly underperformed the S&P 500. So. They performed, right? So if you had money invested in them, you made money, right? There's nothing wrong with that part of it. But the problem is if you just kept all your money in the SP five hundred, you would have done better. You'd made more money. So the performance of these relative valuations have not been as supportive as the media would make it out to be. And there's a problem with these relative valuations. Again, I'm I'm gonna go into a bit more detail on this on Friday as well, but Uh, in part two of this this coming Friday, which is relating actually to retail investors. But 40% of the Russell 2000 have negative earnings. So here's the point. If nearly half, right, 40%, of the Russell 2000 has negative earnings, then how can you say that the entire index has a better valuation multiple than large caps? Do you just not include these forty percent? Are we only, when, in other words, when we're valuing the S and P, do we just exclude these 40 percent of companies that have no earnings? And only value the ones that do have earnings? Is that how we get to that lower? See, this is what they don't tell you in these relative valuations. Because I guarantee you, if you slap 40% of companies with negative earnings into a valuation matrix, the valuations of Russell 2000 are substantially higher. But this is one of the risks, right? Again, comparables. Two Ferraris. Why is one cheaper? Now... Ferrari versus Toyota Corolla, which is a better value, right? <laughs> and again, it's it's about comparables. Things have to be equal in order to have a true comparison. And when you have 40% of companies with negative earnings, it's not a true comparison. You know, we talk about debt as well. And one of the problems that we have in small cap stocks that you don't have in large cap stocks is that a very large percent, about 20 percent of the index, is what we call zombie firms. Zombies are companies that are dependent on debt in order to survive, and their debt servicing costs are actually more than the profits that they make. So they have to issue more debt in order to continue operations without the debt issuance. They don't remain in business. That's a very different structure once you start talking about large cap stocks. You don't have that. Again, comparables. But let's talk about something else that drives small and mid-cap businesses more than anything else. And that's small and mid-cap activity, right? That's the what happens with these companies. Where do their business come from? Where do these people make money from? And so if we take a look at the breakdown of employment in the U.S. Now, small businesses are incredibly important. So when we talk about small and mid-sized businesses, they're incredibly important to the overall economy. They make up about fifty percent of the entire employment of the United States. Most of the employment, or about fifty percent of the employment, are with companies that have five or ten or fewer employees. Just a big number of uh, of, of small businesses. These are your mom and pop, you know. Retail stores, there are your salons, they are your barbershops, shops, are your mechanics. There's, you know, all these type of stru- these stores that you know and shop and go to. These are small small cap companies, right? And they make up, so they are important. And so, if we really want to know what the health and wellness is of these small companies that we're about to invest in then we can really look no further than going to the National Federation of Independent Business an independent business which surveys these companies and there's a reason that this is important now when you take a look at the NFIB survey again we we're talking about economists who are upgrading their estimates for economic growth in the first segment the problem is is that the vast majority of small business owners are not confident about that improvement and these are companies that see the activity firsthand. In fact, just in the latest report, their their optimism fell to 89.9, and that's at levels that have been associated with recessions in the past. So their sentiment is not optimistic, but again, it's not just the sentiment, right? It's not, now, where does their sentiment come from? Well, sentiment comes from if they're selling goods or services, right? And so we talk about these booming retail sales numbers, right? We've had these very strong retail sales numbers recently, and everybody's like, oh, the, the, the consumer is just doing fantastic. Yet we take a look at actual sales and sales expectations of small businesses. They're some of the lowest levels that we've seen going back throughout history. And in fact, there's usually a fairly big deviation between what they expect to sell. In other words, over the next three months, they ask them the question, do you expect sales to be stronger over the next three months or not? And they say yes. And usually there's a fairly large divergence between what they expect and then what they actually sold over the previous three months. And that's not the case now. Those are mostly aligned. So in other words their expectations are now in alignment with what reality is. They're not as optimistic, right? It's like, oh, I think that if, if they thought the economy was getting better, we'd see a big uptick in expected sales, and even though actual sales are still lagging, But they're not optimistic. And if I'm not optimistic, if I'm not seeing sales come in, right, if I'm not selling goods or services, I'm not going to spend money. And, if I'm not, and, and so I'm not going to do any type of capital expenditures, right? I'm not going to go open a new store or expand my current store, um, anything like that. And that kind of aligns with what's going on with real gross private investment, even in the economy, which has been ticking lower. Same thing goes with employment. Expectations. So again, you small businesses. Are you planning on hiring anybody in the next three months? They were very exuberant about that. They were saying, oh, yeah, we're going to hire a bunch of people. But they actually didn't. Actual employment has remained at very, very low levels, which is, as we've talked about recently, this is why people, there's all these job openings, yet nobody can get a job. They're, yeah, they're, they're posting jobs, but they're not actually willing to hire anybody because they're not selling any products, right? They keep expecting sales to improve, but they don't actually improve. And now the expectations of hiring are dropping sharply. That's not what you need for a strong economic growth environment. And that's not what you need... For the type of environment for small and mid cap companies to grow earnings we'll come back and finish this conversation up on the other side of the break don't go away The Real Investment Advice Blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So just talking a little bit about small cap investing. Again, a lot of commentary out lately about why investors should run out, you know, rush and, and buy small cap stocks. that are undervalued. And look, when markets are rising, Rising tides tend to lift all boats, so small caps have been performing lately. But as we were talking about since 2014, they've grossly underperformed the market. So the, and the problem is is with these calls for small caps, et cetera, is that you have to understand kind of the underlying dynamics, which aren't healthy. The economy's not healthy for small businesses. And again, we just went through the National Federation of Independent Business. Some of their analysis doesn't really support the small cap story too much. But also the underlying fundamental structures of small caps are, are weakened. As we, we talked about earlier, we talked about these zombie companies and that, you know, they're dependent on debt issuance. Well, next year, starting next year, and we've got a chart on this, that there's a large debt wall that's now coming up for these companies. and So they're going to be have they're going to have to refinance. And the, and the question is, can they refinance at higher rates and. And, and still stay alive, right? Because, again, these companies have to refinance a lot of this debt. So in 24, 25, 26, a very substantial portion of this debt is coming due. And so there's going to be a challenge potentially in having to, to refinance that. Well, in order to refinance debt, then I've got to create sales, right? And, again, we go back to sales and earnings, and those are improving – mildly at this point. And there's a, there's a big correlation, there's a large correlation between their earnings, obviously, between the earnings and, and the sales expectations. And if sales expectations aren't vastly improving, then we shouldn't expect a huge increase in their earnings, ultimately. Because sales, what happens to the top line, drives the bottom line. And so this, this presents a, a couple of challenges for small caps. And again, why why am I the reason I'm going through this NFIB data is because the NFIB data has been weakening as of late. And there's a very long standing correlation between the small business index, the annual rate of change, and the annual rate of change in the small cap index. And so, the recent rally that we've seen in Small cap stocks has been in line with the improvement on the year-over-year basis of the NFIB index. So if that NFIB index begins to weaken again, which all indications are that it will, then we're likely going to see an underperformance. Again, doesn't mean that small caps are going to be negative. If you buy small cap stocks or have investment in small caps, it doesn't mean you're going to lose money. It just means that on a relative basis, right, where's the value where am i likely to perform better and again small and mid cap stocks are very sensitive to economic changes so if we do if so if wall street economists and wall street analysts are wrong and we don't have this sharp, sharp recovery in the economy then there's a risk And and, and the risk of these calls, again, goes back to the very fundamental factor that M2 as a percentage of GDP is declining from the economy. And the the more that money evaporates from the economy, it works its way through the system, the slower the rate of economic growth is going to continue to be. And that's going to have the biggest impact not on companies like NVIDIA and Apple and Microsoft, right, these huge revenue-generating machines. It's going to impact these small and mid-sized businesses, the most that's where it's going to have the biggest net effect on slower economic activity will be on their sales and on their revenue. And again, if we take a look at valuations 2 years out, right? Valuations for small and mid caps. This is the Russell 2000 index forward valuation 2 years out. So this is taking earnings what what the what Wall Street expects For Russell 2000 earnings two years from now, not 12 months, but 24 months, Wall Street's expectation for sales and revenue actually puts the Russell 2000 at a higher valuation than the S&P 500. So even on a relative basis, it's not cheap. And that's still including all these companies in the Russell 2000 that supposedly have negative earnings. So this is so so the point of the whole article is is, you know, just to a basic premise of just be careful with stories. We hear these stories all the time, you know, in the markets about this is cheap, you know, emerging markets are cheap relative to the US. Well, the problem with that story is that, yeah, they may be cheap relative to the US in terms of valuations, but they're cheap for a reason. If the US economy slows down these emerging countries are the exporters to the U.S. And so if we slow down, and the old saying goes, you know, if we get a cold, they get the flu, their valuations are cheaper. And, And furthermore, their valuations may be cheaper than the U.S., but that doesn't mean they're cheap relative to themselves historically. So, again, this is, you know, that's, so this is the whole point about all these narratives. Just be careful with these narratives because, Again, they sound good on the surface. People run out and they buy stuff. And again, this is going to be kind of the the, the part two of the article uh, on on this coming Friday is talking about small med cap stocks and the relationship to how retail investors are, are performing. Because we get sucked into these narratives and we buy things at precisely the wrong time. And again, we're not beyond the risk right now of an economic slowdown. Yes, all economists now agree that there is no recession coming. All economists are now beginning to ratchet up their expectations for economic growth. But there's a risk to that narrative. So, again, we'll have to see how this works out as we go forward. But, but again, the whole point here, just be a bit cautious about narratives. Because the narratives what tend to get us in, 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 a, in a bit more trouble over time and again this is this is also kind of the point of the newsletter this weekend talking about leading economic indicators and the the issues that go on with this whole debate in the you know among wall street economists saying oh well there's there's no recession now and, and as i said the you know <laughs> you have the leading economic index, the conference board, now giving up their recession call because, well, things are okay. But, but again, when we take a look at the Fed funds rate, it has about a six-month lag over economic activity. And, and, and economic activity is slowing, right? We've had this little uptick lately because of the CHIP Act, but we haven't started cutting rates yet. And even during rate cuts – the economy has tended to hold on a bit while the Fed's cutting rates, and then eventually kind of gives up the ghost. So, so again, this whole lag effect of higher rates is one issue. The other issue is the inverted yield curve, which has not uninverted yet. And on a historical basis, normally we've been in recessions when right now the yield curve is inverted by about 31 bips. And we've had recessions with 17 BIP inversions, 44 BIP inversions, 40. So we still have a, a one of the deeper inversions on the yield curve. But importantly, the recession warning is not the inversion. This is what Wall Street gets wrong. It's when it uninverts, is your your recession warning. The inversion is just the precursor to the recession. And so, you know, a lot of economists, they go, well, this is a lot like 1995. You have all these warnings out of a recession, but you never had a recession. The Fed was, was hiking rates, and you didn't have a recession. And that's true. The Fed did hike rates going into 95. They did cut rates a little bit in 96, 97, and they kind of held them flat. And then, you know, we had the big rate cuts coming in 2000. The difference was in 1995, you never had an inverted yield curve. You didn't have the, the inversion of the yield curve didn't occur until 99-2000. So again, you know, one of your primary, and again, and, and if you take a look at the leading economic indicators, take a look at the internals. I have a chart on this. Let me see if I can find it here real quick. Yeah, here it is. If we take a look at the internals of the leading economic index, the net contributions, the only things that are positive are the credit index because of lower yields, Consumer goods orders are barely positive, and stock prices. Everything else is negative. And so the reason that the conference board is giving up their recession call is simply because the stock market is doing so well. I'll read to you a quote from... Justina Zabrinska of the conference board. While the declining LEI continues to signal headwinds to economic activity for the first time in the past two years, six out of ten components were positive contributors, and one was was zero, right? It, didn't, it wasn't positive or negative, but of that one, it was actually flat, were positive contributors over the past six-month period. As a result, the leading index currently does not signal a recession ahead. So it's interesting because everything else in the index is negative. The important economic drivers are mostly negative. But they're giving up the recession call. As Bob Farrell once said, rule number nine, when all experts agree something else tends to happen, I think there's still a risk that something could happen. Which is why... When you have this kind of irrational exuberance in the markets, which is tomorrow's show, we'll talk about why this is nuts. When we have this kind of irrational exuberance in the markets combined with everybody giving up their recession call, maybe it's the time to be a little bit more conscious about your risk control in your portfolios. Okay, we'll come back, wrap up the show. Don't go away. Daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So this morning, uh, markets are going to open flattish. NASDAQ will be down a little bit more. Uh, Dow's down about 25 points, so no big kind of Early morning debacle at this point. So again, as as markets continue to kind of hover, well, they're at all time highs, and so this morning we'll kind of hover at it. As I said earlier, we're in a fairly defined channel uh, right now in the market. So again, we've, we're at the top of that channel. So probably expect some sloppiness over the next few days. Maybe another decline. Um, get down to around the twenty day moving average to look for support. And as I was talking about this morning at the opening of the show, I mean that's really kind of that key demarcation line right now right there at the 20day moving average. That's the, the point that you know we're going to have a, a much more serious conversation about risk mitigation if we take that out. And, and so far we aren't. so there's we haven't and it's been a very defined trend channel really ever since November. So again, nothing to be concerned about right now in terms of portfolio management or risk management, you know you don't need to have you don't need to be seeing a lot of cash at the moment. But there are, you know, some things. There are some, some some things to be concerned about, right? So if if you are concerned about, you know, overexposure to equities, this is not a bad time to maybe move your balances back towards target levels. So uh, as an example, let's say you have a, a stock in your portfolio, Microsoft, Nvidia, whatever, and it's normally two or three percent of your portfolio. Now it's four or five because it's grown so much. Trim it back to to three right? Take a little bit of money off the table. You know, you, you can never go broke taking profits. You know, the problem is, is that we get sucked into this, these psychological behaviors of hurting and, and chasing performance and the fear of missing out, all these type of things. And, and, you know, those are certainly logical, right? Man, market's going up. I'm making so much money. And if I sell some, I won't make as much money if the stock keeps going up. Yeah, that's true but it also means that you won't give up a whole bunch of money if you wake up one morning and a stock's down 20, 25% like we saw with Palo Alto Networks last week. You know, think of all the the people that had gone to bed the night before Palo Alto Networks and that they're just uh, happy as they could be over their position in Palo Alto Networks, you know, they were up, you know, a, a huge chunk. They wake up the next morning and all that's gone. And that's why you take profits. Right, Because then when something like that happens, and it's going to happen. It'll, it'll happen to NVIDIA eventually. Eventually, one day in the future, NVIDIA's going to come out and say, hey, we're a little bit shy on our sales. Or our growth expectations aren't as high as Wall Street's. Right, Whatever, whatever it is. It'll be some anomalous statement. And markets will reprice that 35 times price to sales or 32 times the price of sales, actually. And you'll wake up one morning, it's not going to be down 20 30%. And that could be tomorrow, right? We just don't know when that's going to happen. But it happens. Palo Alto Networks is a great company, right? Down 26% in a day. So it can happen. That gives you an opportunity to buy, right? But if you never took profits on the way up, How are you going to buy when it's low? And isn't that the very basic premise of investing? Aren't we supposed to sell high and buy low? But see, this is not what we do because we're so afraid of missing out on those incremental rates of return that we refuse to sell high. In fact, we want to buy more at highs because it's just going to keep going up. I want to put all my portfolio into this one particular stock or two or three. I mean, why do I own this other stuff that's just sitting around here doing nothing when these stocks, you know, are going up through the roof? Right? I just put my whole portfolio on those and be great. What's great until it's not. And this happens to investors all the time. All the time. And that's why and this is why if you take a look at most retail investors, they don't really have any money invested because they keep getting wiped out over and over again. Uh, you know, a good example was was retail investors. We gave them all, you know, $5,000 stimulus checks. They all went and, you know, they couldn't go gamble in Vegas because Vegas was closed. So they started gambling in the stock market and they made a bunch of money. And then they lost all of it in 2022 because they were betting on the high flyers, right? The Roku's, whatever, that were down 80, 90 percent in 2022. So they lost all their money got a chart coming out on Friday talking a little bit more about small caps on Friday. The retail investor has not gotten back to even yet. They're still underwater, about 6% underwater relative to getting back to even in their portfolio. That's because of chasing performance, buying fundamentally broken companies, these type of things, trying to create that incremental rate of return, right? I'm going to get rich quick in the markets. But that's not investing. Investing the right way is boring. If your portfolio is not boring, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Investing is boring. Should be, right? And this is, it was kind of an interesting comment that Warren Buffett made over the weekend. So, you know, every year, it's an annual rite of passage that on a Saturday, Warren Buffett issues out his annual letter. And he was talking about The problem of size. And that now that the company, you know, now that Berkshire Hathaway is so large, right, they can no longer buy companies that move the needle for them. Because they simply, A, there's no value in them, right, because they're all overvalued. But B, the issue is that. They have to make, you know, they have $160 billion in cash, right? By the way, this brings up a, a real quick side note about money markets, right? You talk about all these money market account balances, right? Companies like Berkshire makes up a big chunk of that. But he's talking about size and that, that Berkshire Hathaway can't grow in the future, At the rate it used to because it's too big. And there's not companies out there that can move that needle of growth over time. In other words, he can't can't buy a company that turns into the next NVIDIA. Right? If he buys a really small company, it does nothing for his balance sheet. Now that company may grow eventually into the next Nvidia but picking that horse is incredibly difficult but you know this is the, and this is the problem that you know we run into as investors is that we're always trying to find the next big thing And the odds are that we pick it wrong more than we get it right. In fact, about 95% of the time we get it wrong. And so we never generate those gains that we want to. And those gains are given up because we do all the wrong things, right? We buy high, we sell low, we... Try to 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 avoid loss, so we get out of the market too soon because we're you know we're watching something on, you know YouTube, and it says oh the market's going to crash next week because of the dollar, the deficit, whatever it is, and so we get out of the market trying to avoid the crash. Loss aversion is one of the big detractors from portfolio performance over time. And the other thing is is one of the big challenges that we force ourselves into and we've talked about this before is just trying to benchmark an index forget about the s&p it has nothing to do with you it has no it pays no taxes it has no fees it has the ability to substitute stocks if one stock's not working they can take it out stick another one in the whole index rebalances and performance keeps going you don't have that option you've got to sell the stock that's not performing for less money, you lose money, and then whatever little bit of capital you have, you can try to buy the other company, but it's not the same. And so over time, you're not, because you have to pay taxes, because you have fees, you have all these other things that go on inside of an actual real money portfolio, you underperform the index. But yet we keep trying to chase and beat this index, which requires us to take on a tremendous amount of risk to do that. And so we try to generate these abnormally high rates of return, and we get it wrong more often than we get it right because of all the other things that we do. So forget about the index. Forget about what the market does one day to the next. Buy good quality companies that pay a dividend, that are growing their earnings, have stable businesses, and invest in those. Yeah, You're not going to have the NVIDIAs. You're not going to have the AMDs. You're not going to have, you know, some of those companies, the the Eli Lilies that go through the roof. But what you will have is a portfolio that generates income and grows over time. And no, you're not going to ever beat the index, but you'll make money over time. And when the index does decline, you won't decline as much as the index because those type of companies have a much more defensive posture To them. But see, that's a very hard thing to do because psychologically we're glued to the television, we're glued to our apps, we're glued to to ticking lights on the screen. And even Warren Buffett was talking about in his letter this weekend is that we have now converted markets to a casino. And this is why investors always perform poorly because we're gambling, we're not investing. All right, wraps up the show for the day. be back tomorrow. We're going to talk a little bit about our article tomorrow, which is really just kind of reviewing this kind of markets where we are, kind of the market insanity, so to speak. So we'll get into that tomorrow on the next edition of the Real Investment Show. Get by the website, li- uh, Real Advice.com. I'll spit that out. Send your questions and comments. Get the latest newsletter, blog posts. Everything's there for you. And our daily market commentary as well. It's all on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day.